Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Boy, we've got a lot of great information for you this week. Well, the information may not be so great. Some of it's kind of nasty, but information everybody needs to hear and uh, a lot of stuff I need to pass on. And we've got a great interview with uh, Dr. Andy Yen, who is the CEO and co-founder of ProtonMail. I uh, brought um, Andy in to talk to us about uh, how email security works and what you need to be thinking about when you're talking about uh, secure email. So before we get into that, let's talk about the week's news. And there's all sorts of things to cover and really interesting aspects that I want to talk about in relation to these news. So let's get right to it. First up, if you are an Android phone user and you like to play games on your phone and you like to download some helpful guides to be more successful at those games, listen up. Uh, there's a new piece of malware going around that looks pretty nasty called False Guide uh, that has been kind of hitching a ride in the Google Play Store uh, along with some game guides for Android phones. There's a full list, uh, which I will try to make a link available uh, on the website for the podcast. Uh, but some of these malicious apps that you may have downloaded that include False Guide uh, would be the FIFA Mobile, uh, Criminal K, Super Mario, Subway Surfers, Pokemon Go... Lego Nexo Knights, Lego City My City, Ninja Go Tournament, I haven't heard of that one, Ninja Go Tournament, Rolling Sky, Amazing Spider-Man, um, and that's amazing with a three in it, for some reason, I wonder if that's a typo, uh, Drift Zone 2, Dream League Soccer, and many more. Uh, my understanding is, and I'm, I'm not a big Android gamer, but my understanding is a lot. these are often guides to help you with these games, to be more successful at these games, and I'm sure they're very popular. Uh, the malware that's included with these, it was available on the regular Google Play Store. Usually that is something that you would think would be, uh, you think those games are safe. Uh, you can't unfortunately assume that anymore. Um, these apps get into your phone, compromise your phone, and and turn your basically your mobile phones into being part of a botnet. Uh, and a botnet basically is a bunch of compromised computers that talk back to some sort of a command and control server that are run by the hackers, and then those hackers can have those phones do their bidding. Uh, in this case, it seems like mostly what they're doing is just trying to generate money. So it's they're, they're doing advertisements where they shouldn't be and, and getting ad revenue where they shouldn't be. So it's not, from what I've seen, it's not super malicious in terms of of what they're actually doing, but you know that's so far. If they've compromised your phone, they could then ask your phone to do anything else they wanted to do as well. So it's a bad deal, um, and the problem. I'll bring this up again, and for those of you who maybe maybe missed some of the earlier episodes, the the real problem today with Android phones is that the market is so fractured. Unlike Apple, uh, and you know there are pros and cons to this approach, of course, but Apple is in complete control of its ecosystem. So when Apple finds a bug or finds a, a problem, it can immediately put out updates that everybody can get who has a phone, and, and they, they, their updates go back pretty far. So as long as you've got a, you know, a working phone that's somewhere in the last four years or so, chances are very good you're going to be able to get those updates right away. Android, Android market system, on the other hand, is very, very different. So Android sells its operating system software to phone manufacturers and to wireless carriers, kind of in that order. So LG wants to make an Android phone, so they license the software from Android. Uh, they make their own customizations to that software because they want they want it to brand or they want it to do special things that you can only get on LG or Samsung or whatever the case may be. And then that same process again occurs with Verizon and uh, AT&T and whoever else uh, 
uh, whatever carrier ends up um, selling those phones, they also want to customize that software. So they want to put branding on it and they want to put their own special apps and, and things like that. And all this has to go through approval processes and testing processes and whatnot. But the problem is that that makes you so far removed from the original software that when bugs are found uh, or mitigations uh, or, uh, or fixes come out that would prevent these bugs from doing their worst, it's got to go through that entire chain again to be able to finally get to the consumer. And in many cases, they just don't make it. So for older phones or for certain kind of abandoned phones by manufacturers or by carriers, if they've put those kind of phones off to the side and said, we're not updating those phones anymore, then you're you're out of luck. So there are many reasons why you might want to go Android over Apple. Uh, and I'm not here to tell you that one is necessary, quote unquote, better than the other. However, from a purely security standpoint, it's Apple devices are much easier to keep up to date uh, and including getting all fixes for any bugs that are found. And nobody is perfect. I'm a software engineer. I'm here to tell you that software is hard. <laughs> These systems are extremely complicated. And no matter how good you are, bugs will happen. So the real test is how quickly can those bugs be found and fixed and distributed to the customers to protect them so that the, the exposure is limited to when these bugs are found. And I'm, I'm saying that it's much quicker in the case of Apple instead of Android. So that's something to consider next time you're looking for a new phone. If you already have your phone, then, then you have your phone and you've got to deal with what you've got. So if you do have an Android phone, all I, the best I can say is if you've got some of these apps and you can uh, go to the link on the webpage to, to find um, the links to these apps, um, in the full list, if you have any of these, certainly remove them. That may not be sufficient, however, um, and you might be looking for some information from, uh, from Android on how to go further. One of the things that, uh, that I will note with this particular case is something you, that would have prevented the app from, from doing its worst is when the app was installed, it, it prompted you for uh, administrator privileges. That is something you should never give to an app unless you're absolutely sure of where that app came from and you know that app needs administrative privileges to do what it needs to do. In this case, if you're downloading a game guide, it certainly doesn't need to have full control of your device. So that should have been a red flag. But a lot of people just ignore those things or just click OK every time something like that pops up because they want what they want and they want to get to it right now. Uh, and they feel like they have no means of knowing whether, <laughs> whether or not they can say yes or not. So... They say yes, because, well, I want to use this app. And if I say no, I maybe I can't use this app. And in this case, that would have been a good thing. <laughs> so anyway, if you've got apps popping up for permissions, asking you for things that make no sense, uh, say no. And if the app doesn't work, well, then maybe the app doesn't work. Um, but in this case, it would have saved you a lot of trouble. Item number two in today's news, if you own a recent Linksys router, uh, a researcher has found multiple bugs in the software of link of these uh, modern Linksys routers. Um, they're still working on fixes, so they're not being completely transparent on what they found because they don't want the hackers to get a hold of it and start doing bad things before a fix can be made. But I can tell you that uh, there are many, many routers uh, that are affected. Uh, I've put a link on the website so you can look that up. Otherwise, you can also just search Linksys, uh, Linksys.com, and look for article number 246427. That will give you the list. Uh, so what I can tell you, though, uh, is what to what to do to protect yourself from some of these kind of things. Now, this these particular bugs, m most of them weren't super bad, um, though they, they they were labeled critical. Uh, they the ones that were some of the ones that were labeled 
critical basically would allow somebody um, with the right set of circumstances to be able to take over your router and cause your router to do bad things. In my understanding is that, that particular case was is, was not straightforward. Uh, nevertheless, some of these bugs were remotely exploitable, uh, meaning that somebody could just find your router from anywhere on the planet uh, and get into it from from afar. Those are the worst. And one thing you you should definitely check on any router you buy, not just Linksys, but um, any router you buy, you need to get familiar with the administrator inf- uh, interface on that router. It's usually a web page, so you, there's and the instructions that come with it will tell you how to get there. And every router is different. Uh, when you first put in your new Wi-Fi router at home, um, including if you get one from your cable provider, by the way, uh, there should be some sort of web page you can go to that will show you the status of your router and give you some administrative interfaces. And what would you use this for? Well, the most common thing that people would use this for is to change the name of their, their Wi-Fi. So that it's, you know, so if I have mine at my house, it's Carrie's great Wi-Fi or whatever. Uh, you know, a lot of people like to change that name. That's, that's the main thing people would do on this interface, but there's many, many other things you can do, uh, including, uh, some things that you need to do. First of all, you need to change the default password for the administrator account. Uh, most people just leave these as defaults. The defaults are very well known, um, to the bad guys in particular. And if they are ever in a position, like for instance, if they've compromised your laptop or some other device in your house. And then they can get to from the inside, from inside your home network, they can then get to this administrative web page using the default login, and then they could cause all sorts of bad things to occur. Um, this is actually how a lot of what we call these IoT, these Internet of Things botnets um, propagate is, is that people get these devices, they have these administrator accounts on them so that you can change things, and they all come with a default password, and, and these are well known. So the first thing you should do whenever you get any kind of device like this that has some sort of an administrative interface on it is you need to change that default password. Uh, So that's one thing. Second, for some reason, and I cannot imagine why this is, some some routers, and and I'm not sure if Linksys is one of them, um, come with a way to remotely administer your router, which is to say to get to this administrative interface from outside your home network. So I guess while traveling, I, I, I have no idea why anybody would ever really need to do this. You should only ever be administering these things from within, your, within the safety of your home network, um, from behind the wall, basically. Um, poking a hole in that wall so that you could make these sorts of critical changes remotely is just begging for trouble. And some of these routers, for whatever reason, have that capability turned on by default. One of the things that you would look for, um, and again, unfortunately, every one of these is different, so it's they're not standardized. So I can't really give you a rock-solid you know, way to say, go to here, click this, click that, change this, because every one of them is different, and every manufacturer changes them from time to time as well. So if I told you something that worked today, it may not work tomorrow. So unfortunately, this is where you have to do a little digging on your own, and you may have to call support, and that's perfectly a valid reason to call support. Um, one of the things that they sometimes put on the external interface is what's called UPnP. And if you're a gamer, you've probably heard of this. Uh, that stands for Universal Plug and Play. And what that is is it's it's sort of a kind of an automatic interfaces that let some of the devices within your home, like for instance, say an Xbox or a PlayStation. Uh, that need to kind of poke holes in your firewall, that need special access to get out to the internet and have certain things come back to the internet. Um, this is, a, this is a, a technique developed, I think originally by Microsoft, to allow these devices to talk with your home router without you having to, you, the consumer, having to do this yourself. 
to let these kind of things negotiate between them and say, hey, I need I need special access in the router if this ha if if it has UPnP enabled turned on, which a lot of them do by default, to say, okay, sure, you need special access. I trust you. I'm going to give you special access. That's you know semi well and good for devices that were within your home that are trying to get out. That's fine. Um, it, that's I usually turn that off, but I can understand why a lot of people want that to, to work because otherwise you've got to do this yourself manually, and this is honestly beyond most people. Um, it's just too complicated. So that's what, which is why they developed this. But some of these routers um, actually have the same capability turned on the outside, and again, I I cannot imagine any use case, any scenario where this makes sense. It's just a security nightmare. You don't want something from outside your router being able to affect the settings of your router and let certain things in and out. That's just bad. So you might look and see on your router's interface if there's a UPnP setting and if it's available on the WAN side, the wide area network side, that is basically the big capital I internet side, the outside your wall, outside your firewall, outside your security zone. So you don't want that enabled on the outside. So if you see that setting, turn it off. Another particular thing that Linksys is saying that we should do in the meantime while they're trying to fix these bugs is to turn off your guest network access. I'm not sure why. Maybe these bugs are somehow specific to that network, uh, your guest network instead of your regular network. Uh, so you, I guess you can disable your guest network until these fixes are made. And then once these fixes are made, you need to apply them. Uh, most people's routers do not auto-update. In fact, I don't know if any of them do. Um, so that means that you, as a consumer, need to go to this admin webpage, look for updates from Linksys, download them, and install them on your router. It's actually pretty simple. It's usually just kind of like clicking on a button for, say, where, you know, you download this file, and then you say, okay, where's the file? And you click a button, say, here's the file. And then you click another button, says, okay, update. And it goes through its thing, the router takes a minute or two to do this, it restarts, so while it's doing that, your network is down, and it comes back 30 or 60 seconds later, and you're updated, and, you're, and you've got the fix. So um, most routers do not do this automatically, so you're going to have to do it. So if you've got a Linksys router that's affected, uh, you're going to need to be paying attention for this and looking for these updates. And of course, how do you get these updates? You need to register your products. So this is true of really just about anything today. I, in the past, you know, I'd never registered my products because all that really meant was please send me junk mail. <laughs> you know, and eventually that became junk email. And I hated doing that. But with devices, anything that is internet connected today, you should just go ahead and register. And yes, you know, look for the little check boxes that say, you know, yes, please send me a bunch of junk mail and you know, turn that off. Uh, all you really want from these people is so that they can contact you. And whenever there is some sort of a problem with your product, and you need to be looking for some sort of a software update. Some of these things are really bad, folks. So I know this sounds like a pain in the butt. And it is a pain in the butt. <laughs> Absolutely is a pain in the butt. But this is where we are today. This is the world we live in. If you want the really cool features that come with all these great internet protected or internet connected products, then you also need to be getting those devices updated whenever there's a bug found. All right, moving on to our next little news item. Ransomware is back. Well, never really left, but there's a new uh, a new one going around that's that's even more tricky than than some of the others we've seen. Uh, just to refresh your memory, ransomware is a type of malware that when it infects your computer, it encrypts all your files, which is to say that it locks up with a key that it holds, it, they being the hackers, um, the software goes through and basically locks up every file it can find on your system 
and that says, hey, did you notice that all <laughs> did you notice that all your files are now unusable? That's because I locked them up and I've got the key. You want the key? You pay me money. You pay me money, I give you the key, you get your files back. Um, believe it or not, most of them actually do do their best attempt to give you that key when you pay to give your files back because if it got around that they that they never gave the key, then nobody would pay. So it, ironically, there's there is so much at least a little bit of honor in these thieves in that they <laughs> they generally try to honor their promise that if you pay them, you get your files back. Now, there's nothing saying they may not relock your files again in the future. So your real solution for all of the ransomware and really any malware thing is to make sure you've got plenty of safe backups of your files. So if you had a complete copy of everything on your computer, then you could just say, screw you, I don't need that. I'm just going to replace my files and, and whatever. Um, but if you get hit by ransomware uh, and you, don't, you do not have those files backed up, then you either have to throw away all those files and never get them back ever again, uh, or you need to pay somebody. Now, the other option too, by the way, I will throw this out, is some of these ransomware folks don't do it quite right and they screw up and they actually don't lock them as, as well as they think they lock them. So when you get a, a problem like this, before you give up, you know, if your choice is I can't afford to pay these guys so I'm going to lose my files and, and, and I have to wipe my computer and start over again, you should definitely look to see if your particular case of ransomware was done right. Uh, and you'd have to do a little Googling on that, um, to find out, you'll have to kind of describe how, you know, what your ransomware looks like. The best way to do it is kind of to, 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 to capture the words that are on the little pop-up message that give you the warning and tell you how to pay. You know, you start describing kind of those things to Google and Google will find the particular kind of ransomware you have. And if you're really lucky, uh, that ransomware will have been cracked, um, by the good guys. Um, and they will be able to help you get your files back without paying any money. So before you ever pay money to a ransomware person, make sure you do some Googling and some serious searching on that to make sure that there's not a bug in their software, ironically enough, that would allow you to get your files back without paying. So anyway, let's talk about this particular new ransomware variant that we're seeing. Um, and it's interesting in the case that it's it's nested. It's, it, it's um, one researcher likened it to the Matryoshka dolls, the, the Russian nesting dolls. Uh, the way it basically works is you get an email, a spam email, or it, it could actually be from somebody that you know if their account got hacked or somebody spoofed uh, the sender of the email. That's also very common. So just because it says it's from your mother, uh, you know, your best friend, doesn't really mean it's from them. So you get an email. Uh, in this email is a PDF attachment. That's portable document format. Um, and, you know, already this should be setting off red flags, right? You, you know, whenever, you, whenever someone sends you an attachment you didn't ask for, that is a suspect. That is a suspect attachment. Now, if you open that PDF, if you go ahead and if you if you ignore that red flag and and open up that PDF and you read that PDF with Acrobat Reader, that's Adobe's PDF reader, uh, which is unfortunately I think it's pre-installed probably on a lot of PCs. On Macs, um, it the, the preview the preview app that's built in from Apple uses for uh, is used to open PDFs, and, and I believe that this particular bug requires that you use uh, Acrobat Reader to open the PDF. Uh, when you open that, uh, there's a document attachment to the PDF, and that PDF attachment is a Microsoft Word document. So that's where the nesting comes in. We've got a file within a file, um, and then that Microsoft Word document, if it opens Microsoft Word, which in a lot of cases will automatically happen uh, when you open the PDF, um, then the, the, this document will come up and try to trick you into turning on macros. And if you've ever had a Microsoft Word document um, with a macros, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, 
basically what Microsoft did a long time ago because they thought, hey, this would be cool, is they built, <laughs> they built in a programming language into a lot of the Microsoft Office document types and Microsoft document stuff in general, uh, allowing these documents to do some very powerful things, including infesting your computer with malware. So it's called Visual Basic or VBA. Uh, sometimes you'll see it called. Uh, and so within this Microsoft Word document is a VBA macro. And it pops up and says, hey, would you like to enable, I think it actually says enable editing or something. It doesn't, it doesn't say, would you like to enable macros, which is kind of weird. I, I would have thought that would be a Microsoft standard thing, but apparently they've, they've altered, altered the pop-up message to say, you, you know, would you like to enable editing? And that, what that really does in this particular case is it enables macros for that Word document. And now the game's over. So now that, you've, now that you've enabled macros, these macros run. This is computer software. And then that software gains access to your, to your computer and does whatever malicious things it's going to do. And in this, and in this particular case, it installs a ransomware called Locky, L-O-C-K-Y, that has been one of the ones going around that is particular, particularly nasty. Uh, and because of the way the files are nested like this, uh, and because of the way it asks you for permissions and it kind of hides itself, this tends to get past uh, antivirus software, which makes it so effective. So it's all social engineering. It's all about tricking you, the user, into doing things that you shouldn't do, uh, like opening attachments from somebody that you didn't ask for, uh, and enabling macros on the device, et cetera, et cetera. So what can you do about this uh, to protect yourself? Uh, first of all, again, basic procedure. Don't open attachments from anybody, either a text, email, however they get this, you know, file to you. Don't open files that you didn't ask for. That I would, you know, some people say that you don't know where they came from, but today you, you can never know for sure where something came from. So don't, if it comes from your best friend, comes from your mother, doesn't matter. That could be hacked. Um, they could have been hacked. Uh, or they actually may have just gotten something and said, oh, I thought, you know, maybe you'll be interested in this and forward it on to you and not knowing that it was infected. Um, so be very careful opening any attachments, certainly any that you did not explicitly ask for. Don't use Adobe Reader if you can help it. Acrobat Reader. Um, there are many other free and very uh, worthwhile PDF readers out there. On a Mac, you can look no further than using the built-in preview app that comes with it. Uh, on PC, I think I've used things called, uh, there used to be one called Foxit um, that I've used. And there was another one that I've uh, also used called Sumatra uh, PDF Reader. Um, just don't use Adobe. Adobe, because I, you know, probably partially because they're so popular, is a common uh, one that's attacked by hackers. And it's got tons and tons of features, and the more features you have, that just means the more possible chinks there are in the armor. Uh, so uh, I would try to avoid using Adobe Acrobat whenever possible. All right, two more quick stories, and then we're going to talk a little bit about email, and then we're going to get to our wonderful interview with Andy, uh, Dr. Andy Yen. So this is very interesting. There's a, there's a thing going around now, and it's coined a new term. Uh, it's called a bricker bot. That's brick like a lay a brick. Um, because what this bot, this robot does, this soft, this automated malware software does, is it turns your Internet of Service, your insecure Internet of Things devices, into bricks. <laughs> and that that this is a hacking term. What when when you brick a device, you basically make it completely unusable forever. It's it's in other words, you've turned your device into a. It, it's as useless as a brick. <laughs> that's 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 the meaning of the term. So the idea of this bricker bot. 
you know what? Let me just read it and go straight to the horse's mouth. So there's this hacker. He calls himself Janitor, G-I-N-T-I-0-R, zero instead of an O. Uh, and let me just read a quote from this guy and, and why he's doing this. So he says, quote, Like so many others, I was dismayed by the indiscriminate DDoS attacks by IoT botnets in 2016. Now I'll stop here and define DDoS. DDoS is distributed denial of service. Uh, And so what that means is these Internet of Things, these IoT devices, like um, webcams, DVRs, uh, uh, web-connected lights, thermostats, things like that. These are IoT devices. Uh, Last uh, September, I believe it was, there was a big internet outage, and that was basically caused by uh, a botnet on created on these IoT devices. And they were so, basically, they were so insecure that this malware quickly spread from one to the other because they they were just easy to compromise. And so the, the malware first spread to all these devices to compromise them and take them over and bring them into the botnet, this zombie army of internet-connected devices that are now doing the bidding of the hacker. And what the hacker basically said was, okay, all you guys, your millions of devices, I want you to focus all your attention on these few websites. And what they do is they pummel these websites with requests to the point where these websites go under. Uh, They can't handle the stress, they can't handle the request, and then the site becomes unavailable. Uh, And so that's kind of what happened. That's what a distributed denial-of-service attack is. Basically, you, you find some way to cripple these websites so that you've denied service. Uh, these things are no longer in service, they're unavailable. All right, let me go back to the quote. So again, picking up where he left off, Janitor says, I thought for sure that the large attacks would force the industry to finally get its act together. But after a few months of record-breaking attacks, it became obvious that in spite of all the sincere efforts, the problem couldn't be solved quickly enough by conventional means. Then he goes on to say, uh, I consider my project a form of internet chemotherapy. I sometimes jokingly think of, my, thinking, think of myself as the doctor. Chemotherapy is a harsh treatment that nobody in their right mind would administer to a healthy patient. But the internet was becoming seriously ill and moderate remedies were ineffective. Unquote. So that should sound kind of malicious, like a Bond villain. <laughs> and it, but basically what this guy is saying, and it's controversial, but let's talk about it, is that if I don't get out there and, and completely disable these insecure devices that people are using in their homes, someone else is going to get there and turn those devices into a botnet and do something really nasty with them. So, again, it's sort of a vigilante sort of a thing. And what he's saying is these compromised devices are so insecure and so ripe for hacking that if I don't get out there first and destroy them effectively, then someone else is going to get out there and do something worse with them. Now, obviously, this guy's methods are extremely debatable, and if you were the owner of one of these devices that all of a sudden just completely stopped working no matter what you did, you're probably not happy. But, you know, extreme times, extreme measures, I guess? I, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying this is a good thing. Uh, but it's very thought-provoking, and I wanted to bring it up because I thought it was very interesting, and it just kind of tells you where we are right now with the Internet of Things. Manufacturers are rushing to make all these devices connected to the Internet because they think they can do so many cool things with them, and they can. These features they're adding are kind of nifty. It's neat to think you could, you know, turn your thermostat up, you know, before you come home on a cold night. Um, 
or whatever, you know, or while you're away, you forgot to turn your thermostat, you know, down in the summertime, and you don't want to waste all that AC. So you're traveling, I'm gone for a week, let's log into my thermostat and turn that down. Those are interesting features. In some of those cases, they're very useful features. But if you don't do the security right, and a lot of these companies are just ignoring security, then these devices are ripe for the picking for hackers. And they're basically computers. Now, they don't look like computers, they look like a thermostat or a internet-connected light bulb or toaster or, <laughs> or whatever the case may be. But these things are computers, and they're exposed on the Internet. So if some hacker gets out there and finds some way to compromise that device, they can take over that device, and you may not even know it. In fact, in a lot of cases, they don't want you to know it because they want that device to keep functioning. They just, behind the scenes, want that device to be doing their bidding. So anyway, I thought this was a very interesting story. I wanted to bring it up and uh, just kind of discuss that from, from that angle. All right, I think that's about all the time we have for news today. In fact, we're probably going to be cutting into our time for the mailbag. I apologize again. Please, though, uh, if you have any questions, and we all know we have tons and tons of questions, so please ask them. Send me an email at Parker at americaoutloud.com. That's C-A-R-E-Y-P-A-R-K-E-R at americaoutloud.com, just the way it sounds. Uh, send, me your, send me your questions, uh, comments even. Uh, we'll read those on the air. We'll use those for discussion points. Now, before I bring out Dr. Andy Yen, I want to give a little very brief uh, intro to the, the topic we're discussing because we don't spend a lot of time giving background um, once we get to the interview. Email has been around almost as long as the Internet. Um, it's something that we take for granted. Uh, it was an open standard like the Internet. It was not really meant to be secure from the get-go. When they, def when they defined all the standards uh, for Internet uh, and for email in particular, well, for both, it was really just meant to be an extremely robust communication mechanism, very simple, standardized, um, so that anybody could do it. Uh, these computers that were flung all around the country or all around the world could reliably talk to each other and exchange information, and that's pretty much it. The, the robustness was really the key. So over the years, as this has become a popular tool not just used by the military and, and, and universities for research, as it's become used by just regular Joe consumers, uh, we've had to layer on security as, as the years have gone by. We've had to kind of retrofit privacy and security on top of these things, and it's worked well in some ways and not well in others. Uh, email, in particular, was never meant, never designed to be not read. Uh, and the thing you really need to think about, and I... And, the doctor will bring this up when we just, when we talk about it, is email is really not like letters. You don't don't think of these things as a sealed envelope with your message inside of it, sent across the country to somebody who then opens it and reads it. It's really a postcard. Standard email, as it was designed, is much more like postcards. Anybody along the route of that communication can, if they'd want to, pick it up and look at it, read it, and send it on. So I've got a great interview today with Dr. Andy Yen. He's the CEO and co-founder of a company called ProtonMail, uh, a Swiss-based uh, secure email company. And there are many extra companies out there now, thank goodness, uh, coming up with secure and private email solutions because, honestly, the default ones that we all use are not very secure. Uh, certainly not if you're you know worried about corporate and government uh, folks getting a handle on your email and using that to gain info about you. So I encourage you to take a look at the bunch of them that are out there. There are some websites. I'll give you a link uh, on the show notes that you can check out for giving you some suggestions. Uh, those would include things like ProtonMail, of course, uh, Privacy Abroad, 
um, and many others actually. I'm really glad to see that 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 the because consumers are demanding it, uh, that these companies are coming up with with various solutions for your privacy and security. So, without further ado, let's talk to Dr. Andy Yen and let's pick his brain a little bit about secure email. We are excited indeed to be celebrating our one-year anniversary here at America Out Loud. And we could not have done it without you. Well, in short order, we've become one of the fastest-growing podcast and talk radio networks in the world. For all the latest news, entertainment, your blogging, and now web TV, as we celebrate our one-year anniversary here, and we'll see you back at AmericaOutloud.com. I'm not sure why we take our health for granted, but I know that many of us do. Include me in that company. Recently, I had a couple of health scares that got my attention real quick. I started a new product called Healthy Cell. I took it for about three weeks, and man, I started to feel really good. I found myself sleeping better at night, had more energy in the day, and less stress and anxieties, and just feeling better overall. Well, with those kind of results, I knew I had to do something. So I reached to the company directly with a request to bring Healthy Cell back to America out loud. And here it is. Well, typically you'd pay $110 plus shipping and handling. Well, now you get it for just $79.99 for the monthly plan plus free shipping. That's right. They'll pick up the shipping and you pay just $79.99. Use the code OUTLOUD on HealthyCell.com or just click the banner on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. All right. And today, as promised, I'm speaking with Dr. Andy Yen, who is the CEO and co-founder of the Swiss-based secure email provider ProtonMail. I guess that name now makes sense since uh, Andy was a researcher at CERN and has a PhD in physics from Harvard. So I have to ask, first question, how do you go from particle physics to starting a secure email company? Well, you know, uh, physics is a lot of mathematics and programming. So in fact, uh, you know, between uh, mathematical physics and cryptography, uh, the fields are, in fact, you know, have more in common than you might imagine. And, and what is there something in particular that led led you to decide to to go from one to the other? I mean, what was it you were you're working at CERN? You, you and your buddy uh, uh, Bart uh, Butler, I think it was Dr. Bart Butler, were, were co-founder of the company. What made you say, "Hey, you know what? We ought to start a secure email company." Well, you know, uh, when we started, this was back in 2013, so this was around the time of the uh, Edward Snowden uh, mm. leaks. Yep. Uh, and, you know, it was in that environment that we realized that, wow, uh, there's a lot, you know, going on um, in email security, which is actually missing. So there isn't really an easy way to do secure, you know, end to end email communication. Uh, and the biggest challenge to security is always a usability, right? Yeah. Uh, so we approach this problem as, you know, we don't want to change the standards, uh, but we want to, you know, uh, change the user experience. Uh, so we, that was a motivation to make ProtonMail, something that was easy to use, that uh, was accessible to a much wider segment of the population. Well, that's a great segue, actually, because I'd like to get into a little bit, just to establish for our listeners, um, what, what are the problems with standard email? Because when email was created a long time ago, obviously, it was mostly a, a DARPA thing. It was, uh, the internet was a DARPA thing. It was not really about security and privacy. It was really about robust communications. So kind of it, in, in your own kind of words, in your own perspective, how, how did we get where we're at and why, why is what we have currently lacking? Yes. So email as we know it today uh, was first created in the early eight, uh, 1980s. Uh, that was when the SMTP protocol was created. 
And you know, the original idea of email was actually a way for mostly academic people to you know, transfer information back and forth. Uh, so in those ages, people were not so concerned about, you know, how do I do online banking securely via email because uh, the concept of online banking didn't really exist yet. Uh, and so, you know, the protocol is something that, you know, once it's out there and people begin using it, there's a lot of resistance and friction to changing it. So the Internet has evolved a lot in the past, you know, 20, 25 years. Uh, but the SMTP protocol that forms the basis of email uh, is still exactly the same, you know, more or less. Uh, and that means uh, email today is a tool that is being used in an environment that it was not at all you know, designed for. Uh, and you know, that's why uh, when we looked at uh, secure email and email encryption, uh, we really had to you know, rework a lot of um, you know, how the email system is working, uh, but at the same time remain compatible with this you know, very, very ancient uh, standard by internet standards. Yeah, that's, that, yeah, and that, that's exactly the, what I was trying. What wanted, wanted you to cover? Is, is there is the real solution to this eventually that we just need something else in general? I mean, obviously, email's been around a long time. It's a standard everybody's comfortable with, but there's new internet standards growing out all the time. Is is it just a matter? You know, is the real long term solution to this to just come up with a a brand new type uh, type of communication with this sort of thing built in from the get go? Well, you know, during the first uh, dot com bubble. There were articles online with headlines like, you know, you know, email is um, over. This is the end of email, right? Uh, this was around the time when um, AOL Instant Messenger was becoming very, very popular. Uh, and now, of course, today AOL is gone, uh, but email is still around. Uh, so I wouldn't count email out. I think there's a very, very good chance that, you know, we will still be seeing email 10, 15, 20 years on the line. Uh, so, you know, it's been, I, I would say the, um, you know, the death of email has been highly exaggerated many times before. Uh, so I don't want to make any predictions like that anymore. For sure. Uh, so let's get to the the big question. Why why do I need secure email? I, I, I know my listeners are out there thinking, why you know why do I need this? Why is my why is my Yahoo Gmail, uh, Microsoft Outlook why why are those not good enough? What do I really have to hide? Why is this important? Yeah. Well, email. The best way to think about it is take an analogy with you know postal mail, right? Uh, Email today, uh, it sounds like it's mail, but you're not actually sending mail in an envelope. You're, you're really sending postcards around, which means that anybody that is you know, along the path or anybody that is receiving the mail for you can receive everything that's written in your emails. Right? So there's really no sense of security or privacy in email the way that it is designed. Uh, so if you're using, say, Gmail or uh, Yahoo, uh, you know, those providers can read every single one of your emails. They know who you're talking to. Uh, and in fact, they routinely scan your information, uh, you know, to serve you better advertisements. Uh, so there is zero privacy and you know very little security in email the way it's tr traditionally done. Um, what ProtonMail does is it implements encryption in such a way that you know ProtonMail, as an email provider, cannot read your messages. Uh, nobody in transit that's handling email between you know here and the destination um, can read the messages. So the only people that can read the messages is you, the sender, and the recipient. And that's actually the way that you know, email should work. And a lot of people assume that email is private, but it actually isn't. It's you know, about as private as a postcard. Right. And I think an important uh, distinction to draw is, is what, you know, the difference between data in motion and data at rest. And, and, and what a lot of these companies will claim is that your email is secure uh, in transit, which is to say that between, you know, between your laptop or between your phone and their servers, yes, sure, it, it's an over an encrypted tunnel. But, but once it gets to that server, let's say Google's end, 
they have full they they have full permissions to read everything that's in that. And then the other thing I'd like maybe you could touch on is the fact that if I'm sending an email from my Gmail account to someone else's Yahoo account, there's actually two different providers at least involved between between here and there. So even if my email provider in that case is completely secure, if the other one's not, the game is still over. So if you comment on that and then kind of tell me about if I'm a Proton Mail user, for example, and and I want to talk in general about these kind of services, does that mean that the person I'm talking to has to be on the exact same service as well? Yeah. So uh, I think that you know there's two questions here, right? The first one is uh, encrypted data, you know, in transit and at rest. Um, I would say you know it's good to encrypt data in transit. But the encryption at rest is actually more important because in order to you know capture your data in transit, you would have to be actively you know under an, an hack or under an attack uh, while the transit you know was happening. Um, whereas if you were talking about data at rest, there is pretty much an infinite opportunity to get access to that data because that data is always there. Uh, so you know the uh, it's it's much more important in fact to protect the data at rest because that's where you know the valuable um, collection of data rests. Uh, and this is, you know, what ProtonMail does very well because with end-to-end encryption, um, all the data that sits on our servers, uh, we cannot actually read. Uh, so, you know, that's why we do that. Uh, now, of course, it's true if you were using ProtonMail and you were to email somebody uh, at Gmail, uh, Gmail, of course, also has a copy of that email. Uh, and this is because communication is a two-way street, right? You're always talking to somebody else. Um, now, if you were talking to somebody else that is within ProtonMail's system, uh, we have end-to-end -end encryption, meaning that we can protect that you know data even on the other end because the other end is still ProtonMail. Now, if I were emailing somebody uh, at Gmail, uh, there is actually still a way to protect that. Um, we actually allow users to encrypt messages uh, they send to you know non-ProtonMail users, uh, and in this case, what Gmail would see is just a link to the message. And the user that receives that message will click on that link um, and then go to access um, you know, the message. And that way, uh, Gmail actually will not be able to um, read that message, but you can still send it to a Gmail user. Now, would that so if I click on that link, does that still mean that I need a ProtonMail account? Because I have to somehow, how do I decrypt that message at the far end without having a ProtonMail account, even if I click the yes. link? So the way it currently works now is you would have to you know, communicate a shared password um, with the person that you're communicating with. So let's say it's you and your accountant. You would tell your accountant, you know, when you met with them at the beginning of the year, you know, uh, when I send you messages from ProtonMail, uh, you want to use this passphrase to access it. So you, so he would get a message from you. He would click on the link. He would enter in that passphrase that only he knows, um, and then he could view the message. Uh, and then this is safe from, you know, um, Gmail or, or whoever he's using for his email provider. Gotcha. So obviously, well, obviously to me and to you, the, the classic way this was done in the in the past was use, using pretty good privacy or PGP. So people would have uh, do the public private key exchange sort of things and web of trust and all this thing. And, and, and what they would do is they would encrypt the message itself and then not worry about the communication channel, as you were saying before, the focusing on the data at rest and then not worrying so much about the data in motion. It does PGP is a world of hurt. I've tried to use it many times myself. And there's just even for me as a technologist, as, as a software engineer, it, I find it clunky and hard to use. And yet that seems to be the only thing that's currently standard. So if I'm, is there any hope of coming up with something simpler that, that, that we can actually interop with, uh, with, with, with multiple services? Or at this point, are we still kind of stuck with, if you really want to do this, then everyone's got to be on the same provider? Yeah. Well, you know, PGP has been around since uh, I think it was, it was created first in 1991. 
So what PHP has really taught us in, you know, 20 some years is that, you know, even one click is uh, too much. <laughs> um, now, you know, in ProtonMail, uh, we actually base everything on PGP. So it is PGP based and it is PGP compatible. Um, all we have done though, is taking the complexity of PGP and taking that all away and made it transparent to the user. So when you use ProtonMail, in fact, you are using PGP, um, but you would never know it if you didn't dig under the hood. Uh, and that's actually, I think, the way that you know we can make PGP uh, reach a, lot, a larger audience is in fact by making it invisible. Uh, and this is what we've done in ProtonMail, and I think this is why we've been successful in getting probably at this point the world's largest PGP you know deployment out there. Interesting. Okay, so here here's the hard part for me, and I think for and when I have a hard part hard time recommending any of these things to 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 others, and how, as a as a consumer, as a, especially as a layman. How am I really supposed to evaluate? Because because ProtonMail is just one of many, right? There are there are many many other uh, providers out there that claim to be secure email providers, military grade encryption. Uh, you know, they they throw all these terms. We don't log anything. As a as a consumer, what hope do I have of being able to validate any of these claims and choose to make an informed choice between which of these other services I might use? And and, and how do I make those decisions? Yes. So this basically comes down, you know, to the concept of trust, right? Um, obviously, you want to pick an email service that you don't have to trust as much as possible. Um, but you know, that's of course, you know, not possible. You have to have some level of trust, you know, somewhere. Uh, so there's really, I would say, two major things you have to look at, right? Um, number one, you have to see if the technology that you're using is open source and available for review. In Proton's case, um, all of our you know, front-end code is open source. Um, our encryption libraries are open source. Uh, so this gives you confidence that other people in the security community you know, have, the ability, have the ability to vet and check the software to make sure that it's doing what it in fact you know, claims to do. Uh, then the second thing that is very important to look at is you have to look at the competence of the, of the people behind the software, right? Because uh, at the end of the day, uh, software and code is written by people. And people, you know, for better or worse, uh, make mistakes. But some people make more mistakes than other people, right? <laughs> uh, so a good way to look at it is, is you know, the people that are, that are writing the code, are they competent? Uh, do they have a security background? Um, have they gone through the correct procedure of building their code? Have they worked with the security community uh, to open source the software and get it vetted? Um, and if, you know, you can check all these boxes, you're still not 100% sure uh, that, you know, this is 100% secure because that doesn't exist. Uh, but you will have a much higher level of confidence that the software you're using is doing what it claims to do and is doing it correctly. Yeah. Yeah. So just for the audience sake, so open source, open source software uh, is something that I try to talk about a lot for this exact same reason. And that is that basically what that means is that the code, the actual software, the, 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 the things that make up the product that you're buying uh, is open and available for others to peruse and, uh, and to test on their own and, and look for flaws. Uh, and that is an extremely important thing to, to look for, I, in my view, uh, to know that you know it's a, it, it is a way for maybe not you as a layman, but to at least to know that that this uh, uh, source code is available for others who are experts, who are security experts, who are uh, vetting these things to be able to say, yes, I've looked at this code. They're doing what they say they're doing. I don't see any flaws. Uh, and certainly as a software engineer, I know that it, I don't care how good you are, there will always be flaws. So it's always good to have peer review to have other people looking over your shoulder and be able to point out areas, oh, you might miss something here or whatever. So uh, yes, I would uh, completely agree. How many of your uh, competitors that maybe you don't know off the top of your head uh, are also open source based? Do you know? Uh, well, you know, since we made a real push to do open source, 
everybody has also more or less copied us and open sourced their code. Um, but you know, this is why I want to go back to the open source point a little bit. It's one thing to you know open source the code, right? Anybody can today publish code on GitHub and let people re re uh, look at it. Um, it's another thing though to see if this code has actually been thoroughly vetted and if it ha has actually you know um, been tested, right, and, and, and gone through the test of time, right? So for ProtonMail, in our case, because everything is based on PGP, um, we know that that's been out there for you know over 20 years and no one has cracked PGP yet. So you know that's a one strong indicator that the software is secure. Mm -hmm. uh, but the other thing that we have done that I think nobody else you know, in the industry has done is that we have actually built an entire community um, and a whole you know, collection of projects around our core open source library. So the library that powers ProtonMail is something known as OpenPGPJS. And the reason you can have very good confidence that this is well vetted is because in fact, we maintain the library but we're not the only project using it. Um, a lot of you know other projects doing PGP, such as uh, Mailvelope, and you know numerous other projects um, are also based off of OpenPGPJS. And this gives you a lot of confidence because the fact that other people are using it means that they also need to check it. So you know for a fact that this library is being peer reviewed and being checked just because other people are using it. Uh, and this is you know actually a very very important point. You don't want to just open source but you want to have a community around the open source project. Uh, and it's only then that you get the sufficient level of security. So, so how is ProtonMail poised as a company in terms of its profit model? And this is something I also try to tell my, uh, my listeners to think about carefully as they're, look, as they're evaluating projects is, you know, how does this company make money and how do they want to make money? And so I'm getting the sense from, from, from you that as you started this, that a lot of this was sort of an altruistic thing. Now, obviously, you need to be able to pay the bills and keep the lights on and pay your engineers and, you know, fund your server banks and all those sort of things. So... How do, from your perspective, how does this break down for you in terms of uh, altruism versus a profit motive for uh, your company and for others like you? Uh -huh. Yeah, so traditionally in you know, our field, which is security and privacy, you know, a lot of different uh, funding models have been tried. Uh, what we feel is very important is to create alignment. Uh, so you want to set up a system where, in fact, it's unprofitable to you know, um, breach users' privacy. Uh, I, I think the easiest way to look at this is to contrast, you know, our business with, you know, Gmail, right? Gmail provides you a free service, um, but as everybody hopefully knows, you know, if, this, if the product is free, then probably you are the product, right? <laughs> and what that means is, in Gmail's case, is, you know, Google's customer isn't actually the end user. Uh, Google's customers is the advertisers, which is where it gets 90% of its revenue. Uh, so at the end of the day, uh, Google doesn't have your best interest at heart because you're not their customer. You're in fact the uh, commodity that they sell to the advertisers. Uh, so this is what we call, you know, a pretty significant uh, conflict of interest and one that doesn't create any incentive for privacy because the more Google can mine your data, uh, the better that they can target you with advertisements and the more money they make from advertisers, right? So they have, you know, a, a very perverse incentive to actually violate your <laughs> which is possible. Um, now, ProtonMail doesn't have any advertising revenue. We have no advertisers that we work with. Uh, so that means all the money that we get to run the service, uh, pay our salaries, and you know, run the company, in fact, comes from the users. Uh, and this creates you know, a very, very uh, perfect alignment between us uh, and our users. Because if we were to breach users' privacy, uh, they would no longer pay us, and then the business would you know, collapse, right? Mm. Uh, and it's the fact that, they, that, this, 
that there's this alignment uh, more or less creates a very, very strong guarantee uh, that you know, we have no incentive, financial or otherwise, to ever breach you know, customer trust. Excellent. Thank you. All right. I know you're busy. I just want to get in a couple more quick questions and I will let you go. Um, so for me, where the rubber meets the road on a lot of these things and, I, and is that uh, what happens when uh, law enforcement or a government agency comes knocking, if they were to come to ProtonMail, for example, and say, we have a warrant, uh, I need to see Carrie's emails. Uh, what happens at that point? Well, because it is a Swiss-based company, uh, you know, such requests have to come to the Swiss courts and go through the Swiss legal system. And that, of course, imposes a much higher standard. Um, you know, you have to have very, very good cause uh, before, you know, the Swiss um, court would consider, you know, granting a court order to that effect. Now, um, assuming that were to happen, uh, ProtonMail uses end-to-end -end encryption. And this means that we don't have access to users' email contents. And we, in fact, don't have the technical ability to gain access to user messages. Uh, so the most that we could do in that case uh, is give up the encrypted copy of the data. Uh, and this is just due to the way that the whole system is designed and architected. You know, we don't have the way to backdoor or um, you know, somehow decrypt user messages because it just cannot be done. All the encryption is done on user devices uh, before it even reaches our servers. Gotcha. Excellent. All right. One last question. I will let you go. What What can we tell our listeners to do uh, to help advocate for these sorts of services in the future? What is it they can do uh, to, to promote these sorts of things and, and enhance online privacy, not just for themselves, but kind of in general for, for democracy and the planet? What can we be doing? Yeah. Well, you know, if you talk about democracy, uh, privacy is you know one of the cornerstones of freedom of speech and without freedom of speech we know there is no democracy right so what we're talking about here is something that is very very fundamental uh to ma maintaining you know the democratic way of life that we have enjoyed for you know the past uh, couple hundred years depending on which country you're in uh, and if that's something that we strongly believe in uh then it's very important to make sure that privacy rights maintain you know are maintained going forward uh, i think the biggest um issue and the places that you know the users can really help out is raising awareness um, if you ask around you know uh 20 random people off the streets i would say the vast majority of them do not realize that google is in fact scanning and archiving uh and you know deriving insights uh, from the email data mm -hmm. this is something that people don't think about and are not aware and it's very, very important for us to increase awareness in that area because if people don't know, you know, this is how you lose, you lose your democracy, right? You concentrate all data and all power within a number of small entities and it happens without people noticing. Uh, and that's what's happening today because people do not realize that this is the issue with Gmail and Facebook and other free services out there that, you know, it's free, but there is a cost. Uh, and I think it's important to help people realize what this cost is. Absolutely. Dr. Andien, thank you very much for your time today and uh, very good insights on, uh, on democracy and privacy. And thank you for telling me about your company. Yes. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Bye. And there we have it, folks. Yet another edition of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. More great information for you guys for your protecting your friends and family, keeping yourself safe, guarding your computers and mobile devices. We will have more great guests and more great topics coming up in the future weeks. So come on back and stay tuned. And as always, send me your questions and comments. We will get to those at the mailbag section at the end of uh, as many episodes as I can squeeze them in. I know you've got questions, so I've got some answers. Send me your questions at Carrie Parker at AmericaOutloud.com. 
I'm also very open to what kind of topics and things that we cover on the show. So if you have suggestions, feel free to send those to me as well. And finally, I'm uh, looking for sponsors and partners for the show. If you happen to have somebody that might want to join in and help me on the crusade to inform as many people as we can to keep everybody safe, have them reach out to me as well. Carrie Parker at AmericaOutloud.com. And finally, if you go to the website, you can get links from the show that has uh, links to further information that will help you out. You can also find the apps for your mobile devices for America Out Loud. You can get the podcast app or you can get the radio show app so you can never miss an episode of my show or any other shows on this network. Grab those at the website as well. And until next week, as usual, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Stay safe out there, folks. I'll talk to you next week. 